Welcome to Cat Talk Radio with your host, Molly DeVos. Molly is a cat expert and certified feline training and behavior specialist. With her expertise and her guests, you'll learn how to interpret and control behavior issues with your cat, how to entertain and converse with them, and keep up on the latest feline news around the world. Now, here is Molly DeVos. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Cat Talk Radio. We have an exciting episode lined up for you today. I'll be interviewing an author of a very special book I can't wait to tell you about. And in the meantime, let me thank Brian Edwards of Brian Edwards Wealth Management for bringing this episode to you. Brian has products that have guaranteed lifetime income. So if you're taking care of some special cats out there, give Brian a shout out because he can make that a lot easier for you. And so he's at brianedwardswealthmanagement.com and that's Brian with a Y. So I want to welcome today Aisha Akhtar. She is a double board certified in both neurology and preventative medicine and is the deputy director of the U.S. Army's Traumatic Brain Injury Program. Previously, she worked for the Office of Counterterrorism and Emerging Threats of the Food and Drug Administration. She's a lieutenant commander in the U.S. Public Health Service, a fellow of the Oxford Center for Animal Ethics, and a consultant editor for the Journal of Animal Ethics. She's the, she lives in Maryland with her husband, Patrick, and they sadly just lost their 20-year-old feline, Silos. And we're interviewing Aisha today because she recently wrote a book, well, recently available to us. She's probably been working on this a very long time, books titled Our Symphony with Animals. So join me in welcoming Aisha. Thanks for being on our show. Thanks for having me. And you're right that it was it, the book was five years in the making. Wow! Yeah. Wow! That's as as yeah. And you can tell when you read the book that that you really spent a lot a lot of time on this. And we'll talk a little bit about that. You did a lot of traveling and and copious amounts of research, and it's amazing. Thank you so much. And you know, it's funny. I, I read your bio here and. Boy, these things are kind of seem disconnected to me. You know, the traumatic brain injury programs and emerging threats of the FDA and and a lieutenant commander of U.S. Public Health Service. I mean, how does how does all that do, do those pieces all fit together with animals for you? <laughs> um, I fit them together, I guess I can say. Um, animals are uh, my love. I love animals. I'm very passionate about animals. I care deeply about how we treat animals. And, um, you know, and, and I'm also, a, a, as you mentioned, in, in public health, and I care about human health. And one of the things that one of my missions has been to show how um, our health is benefited by good, positive relationships and empathy for animals. So um, it's not something that's really discussed much, and um, especially in medicine. Um, and this is one of the things that was, has been frustrating for me as a neurologist is that, you know, we know that everything we do in life now, in medicine, we acknowledge that everything in our lives can impact our well-being. 
We know that how we eat, how we work, how we play, how we govern ourselves, where we live, you know, um, do we walk or do we drive? We know that and we know our social relations impact our well-being. But in medicine, we have almost completely overlooked one crucial factor that has existed since our beginning, which is our relationship with animals. And I've always felt that by not looking at our relationships with animals and how that affects our well-being, medicine was truly missing a vital component of our health. And so I wrote this book in part to really start bringing this issue out and to hopefully change it and get people to start thinking about the, um, the health effects directly and indirectly and as individuals and as a society, the health effects of our empathy for animals. And and when you say that, you know, there have been a lot of studies done, uh, certainly for for the effect of pets on us. And we do things like we take dogs and puppies and kitties and things to nursing homes because studies have proven that that stroking an animal will reduce our blood pressure and lower our heart rate and things like that. But how do animals benefit you know, PTSD, HIV, disaster survivors, and, and situations like that. Yeah, so you are, you are right. So in some respects, medicine has been looking at um, our relationship with some animals, mostly dogs and to some degree cats, and looking at some of the direct physiological changes that occurs in us when we're with these animals. Like you said, blood pressure can decrease, heart rate decreases. Um, we, we see an increase in um, oxytocin, dopamine, and other neurochemicals that help us feel good. And, we're, and it's very likely that those neurochemicals are increasing in the animals when they're in a good, uh, when we're having a good interaction with that animal, when we're having a positive uh, loving relationship with the animal. Um, as far as things like PTSD and anxiety and other things, um, animals have been um, helping in a way because I think it's because they help us step out of our very human-centric lives. And um, with PTSD, um, one of the things that that we're finding is that am- animals can have a very calming effect on our physiology and our neurochemical reactions. And this calming effect, of course, is very good for people who are uh, often very hypervigilant. They're, you know, very wary of, of situations and surroundings and being around animals can help them cope with those situations. Um, and uh, with other other uh, types of, and I'm, I'm forgetting what else you brought up. Maybe you can remind me what, what else you brought yeah. up. Yeah, HIV, disaster survivors. Right. Um, so disaster survivors, uh, a lot of studies came out after Hurricane Katrina, as you can imagine, because that was a huge wake-up call for our government. Because back then, I don't know if you recall, when Hurricane Katrina hit, Thousands upon thousands of animals perish because the rescue boats, um, the buses, the shelters would not let people take their animals with them. And Mm -hmm. as a result, a lot of animals died. And a lot of people stayed behind and risked their own lives because they weren't going to abandon their animals. And so things change since then, thankfully, in, in rescue preparedness. But a lot of studies have come out and shown that those who um, survived with their animals were much more resi- were much able to recover 
from the disaster than those those who did not. Um, people who lost their animals were much more likely to face um, a, a form of post-traumatic stress disorder, which is more of a short-term form of it, much more likely to face anxiety, lo- much more likely to, to have depression. And this was, uh, this, was, this was pretty consistent, no matter whether they lost their houses, uh, they lost uh, you know, jobs and income. Having their animals with them was a significant source of comfort for them. And as you can imagine, you know, we love our, you know, we're really, we're to the point now in our society where we love our companion animals. They're our family. There are, you know, our dogs and cats, we don't call them, you know, we're no longer owners, we're parents. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're doggy parents or mommy parents or mommy dad and that sort of thing, uh, um, feline dad and that sort of thing. And we love them. And losing these animals, you know, this, these had, this had some devastating effects on people who, um, in, in their ability to recover mentally, spiritually and psychologically from the disaster. And um, for HIV, um, one of the people that I interview is a, a doctor. He's a pediatrician. And his story is pretty remarkable because he, he works with, uh, with children, with teenagers, all the time who have HIV. He runs a clinic for uh, children who are transgender, have identity issues, and also who have HIV but never in a million years did he ever think that he would come down with HIV because he was very aware of the risk factors. But he did come down with HIV. And for a long time, he, um, he felt ashamed because of this. He, you know, he, he's gay. He was openly gay. But he felt a, a stigma with the HIV that he didn't feel before. And he was concerned about how he would be perceived among his colleagues and his friends. So he hid his illness for quite a while. He hid it from his family, from his mother. Um, and, you know, he, he just checked out of life. He was, he went, he was depressed. He checked out of life. He was um, ashamed, embarrassed. And it, it, it wasn't until he adopted a puppy. It's amazing. It wasn't until he adopted a puppy whose just joyfulness and just, you know, uh, just love, unconditional love brought this pediatrician out, brought the doctor out of his own um, his own um, uh, well of grief that he had created for himself and was able he was able to reengage back in life. He was able to finally tell his mother what had happened to him, that he had HIV. And it was all because of this one, this little dog who, I think it was the unconditional love of the dog that showed him that he, he can still have that love with other people as well, that he didn't need to feel embarrassed, didn't need to impose a stigma on himself. That's great. That's, that's, and, and let me ask you, does, what are the benefits to the animals? Is there scientific research and studies that show that the, that the animals actually get any benefit from their relationship with us? So we're starting, there's some, some studies that are starting to show that, starting to look into that. And um, some of the same neurochemicals that we see rising in us. There was one study that looked at, for example, people who were, um, stroking a dog for like 10, 15 minutes, and they found increases in the positive neurochemicals in both the dogs and the humans. 
So it, it there's no reason to think that you know if you're if you're in a loving relationship with a cat, it doesn't it can be a dog, it can be a pig, it can be a chicken, it can be a mouse, it can be any creature who you know can feel emotions and feel and respond to your emotions, respond to your um, kindness and your love. There's no reason to think that they would not feel some of those same increases in this these positive mood chemicals that occur in us. Mm-hmm. And that that right there, animals feeling emotions, is a big divide in this world. There are a huge number of people who would just simply disagree and say animals don't have emotions. They're just animals. And clearly, clearly you don't agree with that. Oh, yeah, no. And, and it, it's completely wrong when they say that. It, it, it's so amazing to think that People even today still say that, right? How can you, mm-hmm. how can you think that? You know, evolution, um, um, you know, Mother Nature is um, going to stick with something that works. So if it works and if the basic neuro, neurological underpinning works in us, it's going to work in other species, basically. So we all share that same basic neurological hardwiring. And it would be ridiculous to think that we all have that same neurological hardwiring, but for some reason, only humans, that it only causes emotion in humans and not in any other species. I do think, though, that people are, that that divide is becoming a lot smaller. Um, I think 20 years ago, it was almost heresy to consider uh, emotions and intelligence in other species. But I think that the scientific field is finally starting to realize that there was a, a strong bias on their part, and um, they're recognizing that, you know, other animals have rich inner emotional and cognitive lives like we do, different mm-hmm. from us, but, but they have those lives. I, I do. I think, too, that it's the animal's inability to communicate with us effectively, of course, in our language and cats in particular, who are, you know, known to be real poker faced about how they feel that I, I think that that's what causes it. We, we're not always real sure how an animal is feeling. Yeah, I, th- I think you're definitely right. It's easier to 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 see those emotions in some animals like a dog who, who you know, will. Their, their faces show a lot of the emotion, but with cats and other animals, they, they show emotions in different ways. And it's not their fault that um, they show emotions in different ways. It's our fault for not recognizing that, you know, um, different species will have different ways of showing their emotions. And, um, you know, they, if they don't show it through as much facial uh, movement like humans do, that's not their fault. Um, it's our fault in not recognizing that ability in them. Mm-hmm. In the book, you talk a lot about having empathy for animals, which is right in line with what we're talking about as far as uh, empathizing with the way another person or species feels. What's the difference between sympathy and empathy? So um, sympathy is, so let's say you said you 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 broke your arm and I'd sit there and I'd say, yeah, I'm so sorry. Yeah, that's too bad. And that's about what it, the, the limit of sympathy. Um, I, and sympathy may lead me to maybe help you if, you know, if you were hurting or something like that. But with empathy, on the other hand, if you say you broke your arm and you're screaming in pain at that moment, 
with empathy, I can emotionally, not, not necessarily feel your pain, but I can emotionally um, um, have a better, under, emotionally and cognitively, have a better understanding of what you're going through at that moment. And it's, it's much, empathy is so much more powerful than sympathy because sympathy is more of a, an intellectual, oh yeah, I, I hear you, I hear you're, you're in pain, I'm really sorry. But empathy is, is a much more um, comprehensive awareness and sharing of what the other person is going through. Mm-hmm. So because of that, it's much stronger than sympathy. It's more, I feel your pain rather than I, I see your pain. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Bill Bill Clinton was very good at that, right? (laughs) Right. You know, they talked about him being a very empathetic person. Mm Hmm. And and you 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 talk about empathy throughout the book in in a variety of stories. Some some very very difficult to read, by the way, especially as as you talk about the animal rendering facility and uh, and the serial killers and i mean that you've interviewed some amazing people in this book and and i think that one of the points that you're that you're trying to make in this book is about animal abuse so tell tell us how does animal abuse pre- predict or affect human aggression or violence yeah, so um, you're right. So I, you know, I the book is a, mostly a positive, upbeat book about how wonderful our relationships with animals can be. But I didn't want, you know, to to really explore. I had to explore the downside. I had to explore what happens when we're not so kind to animals. And so the middle section of the book looks at that. And I start with looking at extreme forms of violence, such as. Um, as you pointed out, I, I formed this sort of professional relationship with a serial killer. His name, name is uh, Keith Jesperson, who um, he raped and murdered eight women, and he's serving life at the Oregon State Penitentiary. And so, um, through, through him, what I and, and what we do know, and it's pretty common knowledge, I think, is that a lot of these very violent killers often have childhood histories of having abused animals. And so we know that, that there's that link. But with, with Jesperson, I really wanted to explore more deeply as to how and why that animal abuse started. And um, what, what I ended up finding out was actually I ended up having some real surprises with my interviews with Jesperson is that he wasn't always just so cruel to animals. He had surprising moments of empathy for animals. But his culture... And his culture, I'm talking about his neighbors, his family, his friends, especially his father. Over time, basically, their their, their cruelty to animals basically caused him to suppress his own innate empathy. And over a lifetime, he suppressed that innate empathy. And it became so easy for him to abuse animals and then abuse women after that. And so the exploration starts with this extreme form of, of violence towards humans and looking at that connection with um, animal abuse and, and, and explore the studies that explore that even further. And then I move into what we would call everyday crimes, right? The, not the serial killers, but looking at the, the drug abusers, um, the, you know, the, 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 the people who are involved in uh, 
arms trade and selling illegal drugs and selling guns and illegally and um, people who are in, in jail for rape and people in jail for sexual molestation of children or, or, or things like that. And the studies, again, are showing a significant correlation um, between the abuse of humans and other types of crime and other types of violent crime, and this, this even includes property damage, and the abuse of animals. It's so strong, that connection is so strong that the FBI a few years ago added animal abuse, um, uh, moved up animal abuse to the very top category um, of the type of crimes that can be committed because they realize that animal abuse is so strongly connected with other forms of violence towards humans. Mm-hmm. And, and in a lot of these stories in your book, like Keith's story, the serial killer that you went and visited, that was pretty spectacular too, that, that, that whole description of, of corresponding with him and then flying out there to actually meet him face to face, that had to have been very scary for you. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. That that had to tell us about that experience for a minute. Just that walking into a maximum security security prison and and meeting a serial killer that just doesn't happen to most of us every day. It it doesn't. And I think I I will say that you know in my line of work as a neurologist, I I have dealt with um, patients who've had severe psychiatric disorders. So and some of them were violent. So it wasn't completely out of ordinary for me in a sense um but the difference was i was not jesperson's doctor here right we didn't have that doctor patient relationship i was just interviewing him for this for this section in the book um and uh you saw there were some moments where he there was some attempts on him on his part to manipulate me and try to pressure me to come and visit him because he really wanted a female visitor and uh, me being reluctant and, and, you know, kind of pushing that off because I didn't feel I needed to go visit him because we were doing so well with our phone calls. But um, when I finally agreed and I went to see him, I think initially when I walked in, there was a little trepidation. I had no idea what I was going to say to him. And when I finally sat down across from him, I was at a loss of words for a few minutes because I, I just, it, it was a bit unnerving. It was an odd situation to be sitting across from this man. Um, over time, though, um, actually pretty quickly, we were able to get back into the conversations like we were over the phone. It was, they were just pretty free-flowing and we were comfortable again to have these conversations. But at the same time, those conversations were some of the hardest I've ever had because he went into excruciating detail about his um, murder of those women, which I did not put in the book because I didn't want this to be, um, you know, uh, a wholly depressing book. So, but but I sat there and I, I needed to listen to it in order to understand him fully or as much as I could. Yeah, and and it's interesting because he was not, you know, it was clear that he's from a, a family of of animal abusers and and people without a lot of empathy for for animals, but he also had a lot of compassion and empathy for particular 
animals, the, the bird he rescued and things like that, and the dog throughout his life. So how does, how does empathy give people the ability to compartmentalize those conflicting behaviors? So empathy is... It's, it's, it's a strange thing, right? And Keith surprised me so much by those moments of empathy and even had it as an adult. I think in his case, and I think this is the case with many of us, is that in either we are, in his case, he was basically conditioned by his family to emotionally disconnect from animals. So even though he loved his dog, um, the first dog he had, his father's treatment of Jesperson and his father's treatment of the dog taught Keith to that loving an animal is painful because his father did not treat his dog well. Of course, his brother killed the crow that Jesperson was trying to save. So early on in life, Keith learned that showing compassion for an animal, being kind to an animal, having a relationship with animal can be very painful. And um, I think that made a a significant impact on his ability to then suppress his empathy for animals. And this is actually quite common among um, a lot of people who are violent towards animals and humans. And uh, there there have been studies that have shown that children who um, see their parents, for example, abusing animals that they truly love, it can be so painful for them that they do, without realizing it, they have squashed their own empathy. And that leads to them, that helps bring them into a pathway of violence, not only towards animals later on in life, but also towards other humans. Interesting. And how, how do those acts result in changed attitudes or changed behavior on the people's part uh can you can you clarify a little bit more so uh, like in keith's case you know he he was very empathetic and and kind to animals but then on the other hand he's abusing animals i think he also carries that out in his personal life he's you know he's he was married he he was obviously kind to some people and then murdered other people right so how how do those acts of empathy do you think that they that they changed their attitudes at all or changed behavior did you get any of that out of your interviews in the book i think what happens is um we with, with keith he had this by by all accounts, he had a decent relationship with his family. You're right. Um, and I think that was out of, you know, he, he wanted that relationship with his fa- with a family. He, he There was a need always for close relationships. Um, but at the same time, there was this other side of him. So it, it's not like, I guess I can say that it's not as though his empathy was 100% squashed down. It was still there, and it came out in bits and pieces. It came out with, I think, with his family. Um, and, and when I was talking with him, he was he cared very much about what his family thought of him, and he still wanted to keep a relationship with his daughter. Um, and so I think you know there it it, it it you can still have bit empathy come out in parts, but. Somehow we are able to compartmentalize, and he was able to do it with these women who he didn't know and with animals he didn't know. 
And I think the fact that they were people he didn't, women he didn't know, mostly women he didn't know, and um, or didn't know well, and with animals he didn't know well at all, that made it easier for him to uh, be violent towards them. And one of the things that we know about empathy is that we empathy is strongest. We feel empathy strongest towards those we know, those who are um, like us, and those who are near us. So, for example, you know, people of a certain culture are more likely to feel empathy for other people in that culture, and you know, um, not for people beyond that culture, for example, or feel less empathy for people beyond that culture. We feel empathy greatest for our family members because they're the they're we're most familiar with them. Um, we know them and we love them. So it's, their empathy can be very strong when it's those that we are familiar with. The less we know someone, whether it's a human or an animal, the easier it is to not feel as strong empathy for that individual. And you obviously feel a very, very deep empathy for animals. You're, you're vegan, right? I am. Yes, I, I became one uh, actually when I was 18 years old. We, we ate meat before then, my family and I, but we decided to do it together. That's, and, and your whole family is still vegan today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it's a pretty remarkable story because, you know, when growing up, we never thought about what we, you know, what we were eating. I, my dad, he, we're from a Pakistani family, so my dad would go out and butcher goats and bring them back and, we, you know, we had the turkey at Thanksgiving and just like everyone else. And then um, we we got in the mail um, some information. Of, it was a story about one cow. And it was a story of one cow and how she was being treated in a fact in, you know, agri- in this industrial agricultural complex. And she was just beaten and she was crying and it was just heartbreaking to us. And um, we, you know, we had cats and we loved our cats. Just we love our cats. And my mom read the story and she passed it on to my one sister who passed it on to the other sister who passed it on to me. We all read the story and we never we never even thought about cows in this way. And 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 it just seemed we we knew how much we loved our animals and our cats and we know how. Uh, wonderful creatures they are and how they feel emotions and we were we made that connection with the cow as well and that day my mother came down to the dinner table in the evening and she said that's it I'm no longer serving meat in this house and (laughs) we all agreed it just made sense to us at that point and another interesting story, very interesting look in the book, is about workers in, in a rendering facility and, and the compassion that they feel for a specific cow that was in, in the news. Talk a little bit about how, you know, I think most of us who love animals feel like, how could anybody work in a place like that? And, and that's my question. How, how do they... How do they justify that? How do they sleep at night working in in a facility like that? A lot of them don't sleep at night or don't sleep well at night. And um, a lot of studies are showing that people who, you know, know, in a slaughterhouse, these are people who are killing hundreds, sometimes thousands of animals in a day. 
And uh, there's no way that could not affect their psychological health. And um, from anecdotal stories and from some studies, unfortunately, there are not a lot of studies there, but the few studies that have been done really are suggesting that this killing and cruelty towards the animals is affecting, it is affecting those slaughterhouse workers. Um, We're seeing higher rates of drug abuse, alcohol abuse, um, interspousal violence, family abuse, domestic violence uh, among slaughterhouse workers. We're also seeing higher rates of post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, anxiety. A lot of these slaughterhouse workers report uh, experiencing nightmares. It's no wonder why there's such a high turnover at slaughterhouses. And although people have traditionally thought that it's because it's such a dangerous line of work and slaughterhouse workers are treated really badly, which they are, but we, but it, there was another study that really looked at this, and I won't go into all the details, but it really honed it down and it really suggested that it was actually the act of inflicting violence on the animals that was a significant factor behind the high turnover rate and these emotional disturbances that we're seeing. And I think what happens is that for those who do stay, they 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 fall into two ways of thinking. Those who stay either look at their jobs in a very mechanical way and they start to see these animals not as animals but as like boxes you're you're you're, you're stapling or you know they're looking at them as as if they're at a steel industry or or something like that. They're looking at them as not living beings. That's one way that they cope with it. The other way is um, they become even more sadistic. And they start to see these animals as deserving of cruelty and uh, stupid. And, you know, there's a lot of bias against chickens and turkeys and pigs. And we make fun of these creatures all the time. And it's not really fair. But so, but this is what happens in the psyche of these slaughterhouse workers, many of them. Um, they start to really believe these beliefs and it justifies in their minds the violence that they're inflicting on these animals it's yeah it's i can't even imagine as as i'm sure you couldn't either it's and and i gotta say too that the the stories in this book and you're writing it's just very very well written it's an it's an entertaining read it's a very engaging book it uh it's a wonderful book that you've written Thank you so much. And I, I, I really, I wanted it to be mostly stories because I know that's how most of us learn. And um, so the book is, I intentionally want it to be stories, my story, my past, past um, story, my present journey of traveling around the country, meeting these people and the stories of all these people I've met. And, you know, and then weave in the science and the medicine and the social history into the stories, because I think that makes for a better read. And I'm glad to hear you think so. It was. It's a it's a great book. And again, we've been talking to Aisha Akhtar, who's written Our Symphony with Animals. Tell everybody where they can find this book. Uh, you can find it anywhere. <laughs> um, you can find it on Amazon. It's in a lot of bookstores. Um, your library can probably have it. It's uh, sold by 
Barnes and Nobles uh, online and some other places. But if you if you really want to know um, some other options, you can go to my website. And if you don't mind my plugging my website for a moment. Please. Yeah, please do. Sure. It's www.aishaaktar.com. So it's A-Y-S-H-A-A-K-H-T-A-R.com. And on there, on the website, I have the different ways you can buy the book and uh, I'll have some more information on how you can help animals if you are inspired by the stories in the book as well. That's great. Well, I really appreciate you joining us today and I hope everyone's enjoyed your interview with me as much as as I have and certainly appreciate you taking the time to write this book. I think it's an important important message and and entertaining and I recommend everyone go out and buy it now. Thank you so much, Molly. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us. And thanks, everyone, for tuning in to Cat Talk Radio today. We'll be back next week with another interesting interview. And in the meantime, keep calm and purr on. Thanks for tuning in to Cat Talk Radio. Please join your host, Molly DeVos, for another episode of the program on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, go make a connection with your feline friend.